Welcome to Better Words, a podcast for readers who want to know the stories behind the pages. We're your hosts, Caitlin and Michelle, two book nerds who bring you in-depth conversations about writing and publishing from those on the inside. Basically, we're just here to talk about books. We're so glad you're joining us. Hello, welcome back to Better Words. Hi, Caitlin. Hi, Michelle. (laughs) I understand it is raining very heavily in Sydney at the moment, you poor things. Well, see, that's the thing. And I think this is my central Queensland brain. I don't actually think it's raining that heavily. It's just raining, like it's just been raining since Friday night and it's currently Monday evening, you know, like, and it's going to keep going. So it's just been raining consistently but it hasn't, I don't think it's been that heavy, but I'm comparing to like cyclones yeah, and stuff in central Queensland. So to be fair, from my experience uh, in Sydney, the streets there are not built for much rain. No. So have you been getting lots of flash flooding and stuff? Yeah, there's heaps of flash flooding everywhere. Thankfully, where I am hasn't really been directly affected. Although in saying that, because the weather, I worked from home today. And because of the weather, I didn't go anywhere on the weekend. So, like, I don't know how it's really <laughs> so funny everyone. for our British listeners because, yes, when it rains heavily in Australia, literally everything stops the same way that when it goes to 30 degrees here, all the trains stop because they can't run and stuff. So, just imagine it's that situation, but when it rains in Australia and literally everyone's like, I can't come in, I can't do this. Yeah, everyone and you know freaks what? out. They don't know what to do. I'm so excited for that to be the case when I'm working from home because when you're a journalist and that happens, you have to be out there in it, wading through the floodwaters in your I'm, I want to. I was going to say wellies because I'm so British now, but gumboots, gumboots, wading out there in your wellies and you have to be getting wet and it's absolutely terrible. So I'm actually kind of excited for that to be my future in Australia where I can be like, I don't have to care about this storm. I can just be inside. (laughs) I know. Well, that is a funny thing is that like before all of this, I obviously would have had to, you know, be everyone crowded under the canopy at the train platform instead of spreading out. Um, and trying to get on the train and carrying an umbrella between my legs and my pants getting wet on the train, you know, like all of that sort of stuff to get into the city, to get into the office and then stay in the office (laughs) until five when I have to leave again. But this morning, even though I was going to go into our office today, I woke up and I was like, nah. (laughs) (laughs) These are the positives of COVID that we can work from home now. Not that I wasn't doing that before COVID anyway. Um, so weather chat over, although slight, can I just do a slight little extra weather chat? Um, I wrote a, a guest blog post for a website called Hey Mama Earth, a lovely blog. Um, and it's all about my sort of noticing the seasons in the UK. And I'm really, really proud of it because I haven't, I haven't written much that's not been business related for yeah. months and I certainly haven't had anything published that's not been business related for like more than a year so it feels really nice to have something out there um so I'll link to it in the show notes I'm really really proud of it and if you're Australian get a bit of an insight into what it's like to live in a seasonal place and like 
if you're listening from Southern Australia and you actually have seasons, congratulations to you, but we didn't. Um, And even I think Sydney to some extent, like you don't have autumn leaves and all that sort of stuff. Like it's not quite the same. I don't think it's as distinct. Like Like I think there are certain places where that happens, but it's not like literally everything in our backyard, in our street, everything changes. And I think what the Brits don't really realise about that and what I didn't know, it's not just the season changing, it's your whole way of life. So in winter, everything becomes like you go inwards and everything's cosy because it's dark by 3.30pm and it's just all about those cosy vibes. And I never understood that before until I lived through it because even in our quote unquote short days, sun still goes down at like 5 30 yeah. 6 I don't know still it's still the whole day and it's and particularly yeah. you know for Queenslanders and we don't have daylight savings so we don't have super long summer days but also even when it's like in winter and this is the same in Sydney as well like it gets a bit colder in winter but you can still go outside and have lunch in the park or something because it's actually really lovely in the middle of the day anyway it's just a little reflection on Um, something that I'm really going to miss about living. I mean, I'm going to miss so many things about living here. And like, I'm going to be honest with you guys that I cry almost every day about something about leaving. Mm. Um, And that's not to say, I mean, this is, it's very difficult because I'm also very excited to, you know, there's so many things I'm excited about in Australia, but even, you know, Jack said to me, oh, but what about your friends in Australia? I was like, yeah, well, like 90% of them don't even live in the same place anymore. Yeah. I've got like one friend still lives in Rocky. <laughs> yeah, like everybody else still lives away. And, I mean, that that's fine. I'm so excited to visit you in Sydney, but then I'm like, well, what if the borders close again? Then I won't get to see you even though I'm going to be in the same – I may as well have stayed in England. Like <laughs> it's, just, it's just so it's – a, it's a mixture of emotions, but I am really going to miss – noticing all the tiny little things about the seasons and very excitingly the last week or so I've noticed the literally seeing every day the buds on the tree outside our window getting bigger every single day and Caitlin I will send you a photo it is burst into these glorious they're like sort of mini um you know like the wattle color of yellow and it's like all frizzy they're like little mini ones of those I don't know what this is I'm not a plant person I've never seen this stuff before and then there are cherry blossoms um down Mm. south it's a little bit warmer so they have like some more of that now but yeah daffodils in the churchyard are all blooming and I just it's it brings with it especially in this time because our restrictions are slightly easing again and it feels like it's getting warmer again um it definitely feels like a hopeful like a whole nation feels hopeful and I know that that happens every spring here but it feels particularly yeah yeah it feels particularly poignant right now that we're all sort of coming out of this and we're going yeah actually I mean everybody else is going yeah summer's going to be amazing and I'm like please don't talk to me I will cry but um (laughs) yeah so it's just um it was really nice that's been it's a piece of writing that's been uh, rattling around in my head for a while. And when I saw the opportunity to do this guest post, I was like, oh my gosh, actually, I have something that could work with the earth and connection to earth theme. And I've really been wanting to explore it. And because I'm, maybe because I'm a journalist, I just don't do anything unless I have a deadline or someone to actually <laughs> hold me accountable. So yeah, I was like, cool, I'll do that. Um, 
So yeah, long story short, I will link it in the show notes. Um, and I really like, I actually really love English weather, even though everyone thinks I'm crazy, but having sun 250 days of the year actually makes you really complacent. No, it actually makes you really complacent. Whereas over here, if there is a glimmer of sun, everybody is out and everybody makes the most of it. Whereas us back home, we're just like, great, another sunny day. We're like, gross, I'll stay inside the aircon, thanks. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, you're like, oh, I don't want to go outside. It's disgustingly hot. Um, So, yeah, it's just an interesting perspective. So it will be interesting whether you are one of our British listeners or our Australian listeners or wherever you're listening from. We appreciate you wherever you're listening from. Anyway, um, I have unintentionally, I planned to do this recommendation um, for a while and we obviously did our book club last week, um, but I've unintentionally, again, matched the theme of something that we're doing. So, Caitlin, do you want to do your recommendation (laughs) first? We keep doing that. I don't know. I know. It's totally unintentional. It is completely unintentional, but we've done it this entire season so far. But anyway. Especially um, because... This this interview we we swapped this interview around and everything, so it it would never have been it with wasn't a recommendation. Supposed to match, I know, <laughs> I know. it's crazy. My recommendation today is the movie Moxie on Netflix. Have you watched this yet? Not yet, but I really want to. I w- I wanted to watch it in time to do our monthly wrap up because you know I never have a movie that I've watched. <laughs> oh, I know, and. I didn't have anything else to recommend this week, so I'm going to have to come up with another movie for our monthly. So stay tuned for that, everyone. But so this movie, I know it is based on a YA book. I've seen the hot pink cover with the like hand and the cool letters and everything. I never read the book. I don't know if I will now that I've watched the movie. I hate to be that person, but that's probably what will happen. I think I missed it. But the movie is awesome. So Amy Poehler plays the mother of the main character, Vivian, and she also like produced it and she directed it. And I don't know if she's directed anything before, but this is still really cool. Movie brought to us by Amy Poehler. And so the main character, Vivian, is just kind of one of those shy girls who flies under the radar at her high school. And then a new girl starts and she sort of thinks the new girl is really, really cool and just starts to notice a few of those really shitty, like casual sexism things. Like a girl is called out in class, the principal comes in, which I think is an overreaction, but the principal comes into the classroom and is like, do you have a jumper? And she's like, no, because she's wearing a tank top and she gets sent home. And so there's like a few little things like that at the start of the movie and of course because it's an american teen movie at the she's also trying to write her like college essay and it's like what do you what are you passionate about <laughs> and oh. when she asks her mum she's like what do 16 year olds care about and amy polar says i always only cared about smashing the patriarchy and she finds her mum's old like cool leather jacket and like zines and like all these posters and photos from protests and all of this stuff and she just gets a bit fired up after a couple of different things happen at her school because again classic American teen movie there's like an Mm. annual list that all the boys make and every girl gets assigned a thing like best rack best butt 
most bangable. I know it's disgusting. <clears throat> anyway, so she gets all fired up and she makes a zine, like it's the nineties, even though it's not. Um, and I mean, that's very hipster now. It's it very is. I know. It's like it's come back it's around. Come back around. <laughs> yeah. So it's so funny. So she makes a zine and she leaves a pile of them in the girls' bathroom and then everyone finds them and everyone and it kind of, you know, she makes some new friends and they, like, get the Moxie Girls thing going and they then at towards the end of the movie there's, like, a bit of a in-school protest. They're, like, walk out of class with us for this thing and, yeah, but it's a very fun, like, empowering movie. You know, there are... I read a review right when I was looking at the cast. I get always get so sucked into this. Do you do this too? I like Googled the cast and then below it is like the first thing is like a review of the movie. <laughs> and I was like, oh, no, you're right. Because the review just said that, you know, there there is a lovely, diverse group of girls who are in the Moxie club, but it's still led by a cis, straight, white, blonde girl. And that the music and everything in the movie that was kind of inspired, because she's inspired by her mum, is what I, thanks to 10 Things I Hate About You, called, while watching the movie, angry girl music (laughs) from, like, the 90s and stuff. So, And so, like, this review was like, why wasn't it, like, Lizzo or something? I'm like, well, because that's not the story. Like, she rediscovers her mum's old, like, cds and everything like that and that's yeah. kind of what inspires her because if um, it was lizzo then she wouldn't need her mom to be like yeah i care about smashing the patriarchy exactly. like yeah yeah exactly yeah. i kind of like i mean the fact that i love 10 things i hate about you as well like it's one of the best movies of all time yeah. so i kind of love that it harps back to that as it well did for me at least yeah classic. yeah yeah it's that- such a classic that like angry girl music and she had a cool leather jacket and everything so yeah so I really liked the movie it was fun and like even if there you know there are small things wrong with it and there will be people who say that there are things wrong with it but is a movie for teen girls about smashing the patriarchy a bad thing no yeah, I think especially if it makes it like an accessible starting point as well for girls who think maybe that feminism isn't for them. Although I don't know whether that like that's that was very much that was a real thing when we were a bit younger. Yeah, so that I don't, was a real thing in high school that you wouldn't. Right. We can't speak I, I, for current yeah. high school age teenage girls, but we are beyond yeah. too old for that discussion. Um, but. I think that it's something that I only sort of fully embraced in my early 20s because when I was in high school, I'm a few years older than you, but it would have been the same for you too. It was that sort of mid-2000, well, it was like 2010s, late. How are we categorizing that, you know, before 2010, but like that sort of period where it was very uncool, very like that you weren't like a, a... bra burning hippie feminist sort of thing Mm. and I think there's been a whole revival and actually I was listening to um an episode of it's a it's a show that I listen to almost every week um it's from an Irish radio station so it's a podcast but it's it's broadcast as a radio show and it's Louise McSharry and I'll 
I'll put a link to it in the thing because it's quite always quite a good discussion. Their pop pop culture panel, and they were talking about how you know in the early two thousands, if you were asked in an interview or whatever, like that, oh, I wouldn't call myself a feminist or whatever, and they're yeah. totally stars like Taylor Swift and everything have totally changed that. But even Taylor Swift at the start would have said like, oh, I'm not a feminist though. But so I think that that has been interesting. So yeah, we can't speak for, but like, I think if if that had made it more accessible um, when we were a teenager, instead of watching Angus Thongs and Perfect Stogging 15 times, probably would have been because. Because it's Netflix, you know, it's a Netflix original movie. It will come up as like suggested after they watch To All the Boys or something, <laughs> you know, like, and yeah. it's like, it's still a good thing. They're still calling out their high school bullies and the principal for her double standards and all of those things. And those are all good things that need to keep being done. So. Yeah, because as much as I loved watching Angus Thongs and Perfect Snogging as well, there is a lot of casual slut shaming that goes on in that. So the fact much that they casual. Call, the fact so that they much call casual the and not casual. Like, Waggy Lindsay. Like, what? Excuse me. so much in that movie. It was so bad. So funny, though. <laughs> it, I know. It's still so funny, but then at the same time, I'm like, oh, my God, I can't believe it. We just let this all, like, just it, it's so internalized don't even question it it's terrible yeah um but yeah that yeah so I can't wait to watch it great recommendation love it um so my recommendation um is a book that I read recently called The Trespasser by Tanya French I actually would broadly recommend all of Tanya French's crime novels, especially the Dublin Murder Squad series. Um, and I've probably recommended like different books before at some point in our long podcasting journey because I really, really love her writing. So The Trespasser is, I was just in the mood, surprise, surprise, after watching Line of Duty, I was in the mood for some more crime fiction. And the thing I love about Tanya French is that it's not super twisty plot driven it's a hundred percent character driven crime fiction so the case at the center of this is not that on the surface is is not that interesting but what makes this book worth its 500 pages and what makes those 500 pages seem like nothing at all is everything like the internal dialogue everything of the main character Antoinette so the Dublin Murder Squad series is like loosely connected in that a side character from every book will be the main character in the next one. Oh, I love that I know it's so good because you can sort of read it at any point I am a bit obsessive and decided to read from the start mm-hmm. but you could pick this up and I would recommend actually this is probably one of the best that I've read from her um but again, depends depends what you like. Um, but the trespasser is focused on Antoinette. She is getting um, mercilessly uh, hazed, absolutely bullied by yeah. all the blokes on the squad because murder squad is traditionally a male dominated industry. The the boss, the gaffer, um, using my line of duty terms here, the gaffer has been there for like 27 years. Um, it's a very, it's a very prestigious, it's the top squad to be on. So she has been working towards this her whole career. And then when she gets there, 
she's just consistently undermined by it's actually it's actually quite a good theme this is all themed well because she's undermined by this patriarchal bullshit yeah um and some of the stuff that comes out and I, I don't think it's much of a spoiler you don't find out until halfway through but I will say like some of the stuff that the reason some of the guys hate her is because one of the dickheads has gone around and said that she put in a false allegation of sexual harassment against him to sort of scupper his career or um it might not have been him actually it might have been someone she was yeah it was her previous partner on a squad and they value that partner loyalty so much that the squad so they're all like like, she's a shit partner because she dobbed him in sort of thing Yeah. yeah Yeah, exactly. And like she dubbed him and she very specifically was like, oh, don't do anything. She'll say it's sexual harassment, that sort of stuff. Um, And, you know, they're doing things like they're doing things like stealing her witness statements so that her cases fall over so that she gets the boot. They're peeing in her locker, all this sort of gross stuff. It's so horrible, not even but... just gross stuff, like legitimately dodgy police no, they're trying to, to ruin her, her cases. They're, they're trying to get her fired. They're trying oh. to get her fired or for her to stand down. So the that that's going on in the background. That's the undercurrent. And that's really what keeps you reading this book. Um, but the, the case that she's on is a young woman is found murdered in her home, but it's very much like she had the table set a guy was obviously coming over the guy that she's been talking to she was going to have a date and she it looks like someone either pushed her into the fireplace or like punched her or something like it very much could be quite a reactive um thing not necessarily planned right mm-hmm. um so that's and again like that in itself is not like a super twisty case but what keeps you going is things start to sort of come up which may incriminate other people on the squad and she sort of goes which is where I was like this is line of duty fodder when she starts to talk about this she says like there are about six options and she goes through them of like six options I can do if I suspect someone on my squad she goes through them all and she's like basically all of them leave me absolutely effed like I have nothing if I do this and so you in this moral dilemma with her but also like is she right? Is yeah. she wrong? What What's going on? Um, so I just, as I said, it's like 500 pages, but I just couldn't put it down because I just had to know. And I think that is always the mark of a good book. You know that like we are both so character driven. Yeah, definitely. Um, we love that. So yeah, the fact that I was just like thinking about her, not the case. I was like, I need to know what happens Does to her. And I can't Yeah. <laughs> Tanya French's book always, they always leave a little bit of uncertainty at the end. I don't think you'd end. really want a crime book to tie up really nicely in a bow, like a happy ending, do you? Yeah, no, no. Like you end up knowing who the killer is. You're not wondering that anymore. But yeah, yeah other things are sort of left, you, you, you're left feeling a little bit unsettled, which is actually like what I expect from her books now. She's not the sort yeah. of person who will bang that's it yeah tied it up in a nice bow her books are really like more reflective of the complexities of life so that is The Trespasser by Tanya French and yeah we've actually because we've got you know a really feminist novel and movie and then you know uh, I didn't really realize until I started talking how much like patriarchal stuff is going on in The Trespasser as well Um, and then the interview that we're going to be talking about we need to give a bit of a warning, um, a content warning, especially, and we pushed this back um, a couple of weeks 
because we recorded this at the end of February and then Sarah Everard was kidnapped and, and murdered in London. Um, obviously, things are happening in the Australian Parliament um, and it, we just felt it wasn't the right time to put it out because this interview, we talk a lot about the concept of the perfect victim and the case-specific um in the novel, The Gaps. Um, Which is an abduction of a, a young woman. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we, we, we pushed it back because of that, um, but we think it's a really important conversation to have. And obviously, like Leanne, our, our wonderful guest, is so sensitive in the book and I think she approaches everything so well and we highly recommend this book, but just be aware that now might not be the perfect time to listen to this episode and no hard feelings if you want to turn us off now and come back to this yeah. another time. So if this discussion isn't what you need to hear right now, we totally get that, but it's still a really important discussion. So we do hope that you come back and listen if you don't listen right now and we hope that you read The Gaps by Leanne Hall because it is a brilliant book. So today's guest is an author of and specialist in young adult and children's fiction. Her debut novel, This Is Shyness, won the text prize and was followed by a sequel, Queen of the Night. Her novel for younger readers, Iris and the Tiger, won the Patricia Wrightson Prize for Children's Literature at the 2017 New South Wales Premier's Literary Awards. Welcome to Better Words, Leanne Hall. We are discussing your brand new book, The Gaps. Hi, hello. <laughs> so lovely to have you. And we um we mentioned just before we started recording that we both um really again don't know whether enjoyed is the, it, enjoyed the is not the right word. Enjoyed, yeah, but we devoured the gaps. That's very good to yeah. hear. It's a very very moving novel. Yes, it Thank is. You. So let's start there. Tell us a bit about your new novel, The Gaps. Okay, so The Gaps is set at a high school where um, a pretty terrible and scary crime happens. One of the students is abducted from her own home um, and the novel follows all of the students as they sort of try to cope with the fear and confusion and grief that they're feeling um, over the abduction of their classmate. And it particularly follows two students. So it's told from two perspectives, Chloe and Natalia. And I guess I really love, I, I figured out there's a bit of a theme in some of my books. I really love like odd couple friendships or unexpected <laughs> friendships. And so, you know, Chloe and Natalia are very different. Chloe's new to the school. She's a scholarship student. She's a bit of a fish out of water and is is both like reticent about trying to fit in but also kind of wanting to try to fit in as well and find some friends um, whereas Natalia is a lot more comfortable in the environment of the school you know she's been there since junior school she knows everyone she has a nose in everyone's business she's kind of well liked is probably the wrong phrase but she's known and kind of slightly feared slash liked slash respected at the school <laughs> She's quite popular. Um, and so really they shouldn't be friends at all, but in actual fact they they form a connection and they work together um, on a project. And and actually despite like not being friends to begin with, actually help each other through what is a really difficult period at the school for everyone. And like we said, it is quite haunting and very moving. Um, but I'm really curious where the idea from 
for for the like the inciting incident that that crime came from for you? Yeah, so I haven't really made a secret of the fact that it is based on my own teenage years. So a crime similar to the one the gaps did happen at my school. You know, they people always say like you should write what you know and you should write from personal experience. And and obviously having something like that happen at your school is such a massive thing. But I never ever thought really about writing about my own teenage years really personally which sounds like a strange thing to say but you it's kind of like you don't it's like you don't even know your own life or what is interesting about your own life but um that's so true yeah that's so (laughs) true I was having a conversation with someone the other day and I just sort of said some stuff about my family and they were like that's fascinating and I was like oh yeah like is it I just you know it's it's your life it's my life boring than ever yeah. yeah. I guess um yeah so I I was really unsure about tapping that much into my own personal life. Obviously every writer does, but um one thing that was really on my mind and I think it's really obvious in the book is that I had no desire to cause anyone pain, so family, friends, um, you know, I imagine for people that experience a crime really close up, that that level of trauma, um, you never get over it. And any mention of it, you know, uh, in the media or any time it comes up in your life must be extremely painful. So I was very reluctant at first to even look at it for that reason, because I think there is a real ethical dilemma in crime fiction, true crime, Um, And I also consume a lot of crime fiction, a lot of true crime as well myself. And it's, you have, you know, I think a lot of people have a guilty relationship with it. You're drawn to it. You're fascinated by it, but you definitely don't want to be a vulture about it. You don't want to be voyeuristic. You don't want to like buy into the salaciousness sometimes that comes across in some of those um, true crime storytelling Um, So I was really uncertain and that's why in the book I put a lot of stuff, you know, about it. And I must say the fact that I didn't even realise that I should write about this is probably actually my own trauma over the incident that I really, and I've talked to to other people that I knew at the time, um, there's a lot of memory repression going on and a lot of just pushing away of, of looking at it. So I understand for some people, you know, revisiting trauma can be extremely unsafe and triggering for a lot of people and when it's done it has to be done really safely and that included myself in writing this this novel and I do think some people just need to look away and not think about it ever again and other people need to look at it closely and to process it properly and I, I fall into the latter category, I think, of needing to look at something closely to process it. Yeah, I absolutely do as well. And I mean, thankfully, nothing like this happened at my high school. But when I was reading it, I I just couldn't help but think when I was reading The Gaps how relatable I was finding it, even though nothing that dramatic had happened at my high school. But of course, every high school has you know, some scandals, some, you know, sad things. I did have one teacher who wasn't even my teacher, just a teacher at the school who ended up being charged um, with sexual assault, I think. And I suppose most people have something like that, probably from high school experience or university experience. And even though it's completely different to the situation, the gaps, I actually found it really relatable. Did you as well, Michelle? 
Yeah, there was, I mean, I've never experienced anything like that, but I went to an all girls high school. Oh yeah, of course. I didn't even think of that. (laughs) Even in that, I think the way that you explore that sort of the, the different, um, ecosystems, let's say of different, you know, different groups of girls. Also mine was a boarding school and a day school as well. And the way you talk about like borders and all that sort of stuff, I was like, oh yeah, like I think there is a universal teenage like experience in this that is separate from the crime of that uncertainty we all go through that our own like personal traumas for lack of a better word, where, you know, we experience stuff as teenagers and maybe don't realize the significance of it until later, even if that's not as serious as a major crime. You know, there's there's so many little things that happen, um, you know, whether it's a comment, a passing comment from a teacher that you don't realize until, you know, you're 25 or something, you're like, oh, that's actually really affected some of my decisions or... Yeah. Yeah, like it's there, there's so many things that happen. I think being a teenager is such an intense experience. I feel like it's like the the dials turned right up on all our experiences. So even even though we might not have experienced the same thing as the girls in the book or as you, there's this universal sort of unease around revisiting those teenage years. And I think that the book brings that like, you really bring that to the head and you do feel uneasy reading it in a bit, which you're obviously meant to because that it is a suspenseful sort of, yeah, it is an uneasy novel to read, but in a really good way, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it's hard for me to, it's hard for me because I wrote the thing, you know, I was so immersed in the thing. And so I don't have that experience of, I have had a few readers say, you know, they found it very tense and suspenseful. And I, I can't feel any of that because I had to work so hard to pace the book yeah. correctly and actually get that mm. tension right. So for me, I've, I know it too well to, to feel that, you know, um, yeah. feel what the reader feels, but yeah. And the thing, the fact is, is you don't need to have been close to a crime to know that fear and tension yourself. Like all young women are, are, are taught this and schooled this um, about how to keep themselves safe, where not to go, how to act, what not to wear, all the things that you do to like hopefully like prevent some kind of violence happening to you or some kind of assault, like that is just built into kind of the the learning that we have as we like, I guess, you know, I mean, even really young children get the stranger danger message. So yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, this is, this is what I was just thinking as you were saying that is it's, it's almost like the novel sort of captures that loss of innocence where the girls are catapulted into this world where they do have to think about that because it's become more than... And realise that likely one of the adults in their lives is not who they all think they might yeah. be. Yeah, it's become it's become more than like monsters under the bed, fear something might happen to... Because it's like a it's real a person. Thing. Yeah, it's a tangible thing that happens in their life. And it's really interesting that you mentioned Stranger Danger because... Um, my true crime podcast predator is about a serial killer in uh, Caitlin and my, our hometown. Um, And that is like one of the first things I remember being aware of outside of my home because I was about five. So my parents did sit me down and talk to me about this whole situation because a young girl 
um, was abducted from the street walking home from school. And that sort of, it's that awareness of this outside world that you can't control really for the first time impacting your life. And I think that's what, that that's where, I think that's where the uneasiness comes from because all these girls suddenly feel like it could be me next. And I know that obviously you, you might read this and think, oh, well, they're probably just, you know, they're overreacting. It's probably like, there's, there's a, there's a, there are threads in it as well as some of the girls being like, don't be ridiculous. It's fine. Like, it'll be okay. You're overreacting. But I do think it amplifies those feelings. Like you said, that we all as women grow up feeling of, there's even the simple moment of when Chloe is going for a, she's going for a jog in the park and she decides to go further up the hill and she grabs her keys out of her pocket. And like, that is something that I am willing to bet like every single one of the female listeners yeah, or like takes one headphone out so that she can hear other people in the park. Yeah, or looks suspiciously at the man that's walking near her and then thinks, oh, no, he's in a suit, you know, that probably isn't, which is such an interesting discussion all on its own. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I think there's this loss of innocence in the book and that that is so fascinating and is that sort of, is that without like going, you know, too much into your personal life is that sort of how you all felt when you were in high school and that event happened um I don't think that we thought that clearly about things like I don't think that we felt I mean I I think like like you said that thing that you remember from when you were five years old it's it takes you 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 don't your brains don't understand it yet you know for me I think the feeling was feeling like a hunted animal and that sounds very melodramatic. That sounds very melodramatic, but if I was being honest, that that's what it felt like. And that's because, like, I think the level of fear and just like not having enough years of experience, not having any mental coping tools, and because it was a while ago, you know, these days I think that they would um, counsel the hell out of us. You know, if yeah. this happened these days, which you know, my story is set in the current day, so obviously I really actually had to study crimes over a really long period of time and actually look at how something would unfold these days because a lot has changed with um, how crimes are investigated like CCTV, GPS. Yeah exactly so many new technologies and processes. Vigilante groups that kind of congregate online (laughs) you know all that sort of stuff very new and um, had to put into it yeah. Something you know within this I suppose that is explored in the gaps is that ideal perfect victim and there's discussions that like the girls have with their parents and other girls about how society views certain victims of certain crimes. Um, And I think there's a particular one where the character Yin, who was abducted, they are purposely using a photo from a couple of years ago so that she doesn't look like an older teenager um, on the news and everything like that. So that, I guess, perfect victim thing in particular why explore that in young adult fiction? I think because I've actually noticed that things have changed over the last couple of years. So, I mean, the sad truth is, is this was sort of, I started writing this seven years ago when a terrible crime happened about a kilometre from where I was living. Um, And it reminded me of my own teenage years and the crime that happened during my teenage years. And then I took seven years to write this book and several times a year in those seven years, 
um, something really awful and very high profile would happen to a young woman in Melbourne, um, you know, and, and I mean, it's just awful, but that, that was, and it really spurred me on, you know, every time I kind of lost faith in this book, a horrible crime would happen. I think, no, I have to actually look at this. Yeah. But I mean, I think traditionally, you know, the, the perfect victim is young, innocent, white, good looking, well-behaved, you know, has good morals, um, is a good girl in some way, is from a nice family, from a nice neighbourhood, has done nothing in other people's eyes that could contribute to her being blamed for her own victimhood, like being sexually active or sex positive or having a certain job or mixing with certain people or, you know, I think that is the perfect victim and I feel like when these crimes have happened in the last couple of years in Melbourne, I've noticed there's been a little bit more discussion in the media and a little bit more discussion online about, you know, why, you know, and I, I think it's a great thing that a city feels moved to march and hold candlelight vigils and, and collectively mourn a victim. But quite rightfully, people say, well, why are we collectively mourning this victim and not all of these other people that have gone missing from the streets in the last 12 months. And invariably those people are people of colour, they're people who are experiencing homelessness, they're perhaps trans people, maybe sex workers. You know, like there's there's always a, you know, I feel like more attention has been paid to that. The hypocrisy of that has been called out a lot more in the last couple of years, I've noticed. It's obviously not where it should be by any means, but it is getting called out a little bit more often, I think. And so I really wanted to bring that into the book. Yeah, 100%. I I definitely agree. And it's not something that I'd ever really considered, I guess, before I started, you know, consuming a lot of true crime. But I think the fact that this discussion takes place in what is a book for teenagers is really important because we all grew up seeing those news reports, even if it was, you know, we were we were so far away in Rockhampton, but we would see a news report from Melbourne or, you know, things like that. We've all seen those things on the news. And I think having that awareness at a younger age is part of what will help people finally, I guess, break that cycle of of only talking about certain types of crimes. I do think it's a really important thing to bring up. And I think victim blaming has been a bit of a bigger discussion as well the last few years about like, I mean, for it applies to many things, but to not blame a victim to, you know, blame the the perpetrator. Would that be the right word? Perpetrator. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> started to say it and then I was like, I don't think yeah. that's the right word. But I anyway. Think, I think <laughs> my, like, my feeling is that we've moved further forward on that in terms of sexual abuse than we have in terms of, you know, abductions and murders and things like that. That's just like my casual observance of the media is that we are much more open to never blaming the victim for that sort of thing. But then there still does, as you say, it seems to be a little bit of certain cases become more high profile and there's there's not really necessarily a reason why except that they fit that narrative of, um, you know, white, probably middle class, good background, and as you say, haven't haven't yeah. done anything that they're they're sort of like a good girl, 
sort of there's there's no sort of things that can can be used against them. Um, but yeah, that's just like my casual observance of the media over the years. Um, so as we did say, and you know, as we sort of talked about so far, there's been this growing fascination um, with true crime, cold cases, serial killers, like I myself literally am part of it, putting some media out there. Plus there's of course fictional crime novels, which Chloe's mum in the book is, she reads, She I think um, it's like said in the book that, you know, that's all she reads is is crime novels. Commercial crime fiction, um, and, yeah. Yeah, and she could probably solve the case. Like she, she'd be right, you know, she could come in and solve it. Um, but why in a in a young adult setting like this did you want to sort of explore that and did you have any sort of ethical boundaries that you were not willing to cross I mean I explored it probably for actually selfish reasons to be honest I probably didn't <laughs> really have my my young readers in mind when I brought that in but it was it was because I am a consumer of those things myself and an uneasy consumer um and I also was aware when I was writing this book that I didn't want to write a crime fiction, that the distinction for me was that I was writing a book where a crime happens rather than a crime fiction. Um, so I didn't want to get involved in the investigation too much. I didn't want to speak from the adult's perspective. So it doesn't parent. become yeah. like a mystery novel or a detective yeah. novel? like because I, re- I really wanted to focus on the girls and the girls' story and the girls' story was not that dramatic, you know, teenage girl detective story. Um, it was. <laughs> I mean, know, we love Veronica Mars. But oh, it's so, not, so but it's not that story. Yeah. It's a different story. It's not that story. <laughs> when you think about it, like the, the story never gets told, you know, like teenage girls or young women are often just the voiceless victim and their story doesn't get told so I was always like very very focused on how are the girls feeling in all this and to not focus on the adults or the police like all this stuff is whirling around them and I also just thought look that classic thing of there being you know of of the teenagers solving the case I, I actually thought like how laughable that is really like like teenagers don't feel that empowered to go and solve crimes like just realistically thinking about can a teenager solve a crime I would say 99.9999% of the time no they cannot and you know even that idea that they can is kind of like really awful for them because like they they the girls feel it they don't have the knowledge they don't have the power like no one is putting themselves in a position where they can do that Natalia does kind of take matters into her own hands at, at some point but you know, that falls apart. That doesn't really work. It's, it's, it crumbles in her hands when she tries to actually be proactive about something. And that feeling of powerlessness and helplessness in the face of something really big and awful happening around you, I, I kind of want to get that across. Um, I think in the novel, it, it all is kind of perfectly illustrated about like, I can't believe that we all watch this stuff or read this stuff with the TV show Devil Creek how the yeah. girls keep seeing the um like the billboard and all of Natalia's friends are watching it and they're obsessed and I just kept every time it was mentioned I could just picture like the posters for like Pretty Little Liars, Riverdale, all of these shows that I've watched and gone oh no. <laughs> I feel see this is where I feel like Veronica Mars is like oh god it's aged so well but <laughs> Um, this is where I feel like it's slightly more realistic because then, then, you know, 
Pretty Little Liars or Riverdale. They're incredibly um, unrealistic. Oh, God. Um, but the thing about Veronica Mars is that it's never – it's never kind of, it's never portrayed as something that you would want to do. Like you look at Veronica doing that. You look at Veronica taking Lily Kane's murder in season one and you see, I think what's so clever about it is you see the emotional toll that that whole thing takes on her and the fact that she can't, she can't be a normal teenager while also dealing with this huge traumatic event. And she feels like her life can't move on complete Without opposite that. of Riverdale where they yeah, solve there's a mysteries lot of pain. And then yeah. yeah there's so I mean uh, Veronica Mars is just amazing television still and I'm I'm in awe that it came out in like 2003 or something and it's it's aged so well <laughs> there's, there's a lot of I think there's a lot of pain and grief in Veronica Mars that rings very true and like you said it's almost like her taking things too far in trying to find the killer is actually tearing her apart. It's actually almost a form of kind of self-harm, you know, it's, it's not healthy for her and any viewer can, can see that. And I actually think that that's pretty amazing to show that. Yeah, definitely. Also, we have to comment, your dog is so cute. I didn't mention that <laughs> yes. my dog could come and bother me because this was an audio <laughs> format. No one can see the that's dog. Okay. But, um, no one can. can see him. We can, so. You <laughs> can just enjoy He's just joining so in. So cute. He's joining in on the interview. If you hear um, any snoring, it's it's not me. I haven't fallen asleep <laughs> in the middle of the interview. I have a, I have a pug back in Australia, so I understand yeah. the uh, it can be loud. The French also have a nice yeah. snore. Yeah. <laughs> Another really interesting thread that flows through the novel that we wanted to talk about is the racial and class tension within that very privileged setting at Mm. this girls' boarding school. So can you tell us a bit more about that setting and why you wanted to include that in the gaps? I mean, really, we've already talked about, you know, some of the the big trauma of the teenage years, but I think one of the smaller traumas that I wasn't really aware of was actually, you know, a lot of stuff came up when I was writing this book. It was very surprising (laughs) to me, a lot of um, stuff from my teenage years. And the fact is I was in a very similar position to Chloe in that I was a scholarship student at a private girls school Um, and so I think I always had the feeling that I didn't belong there and that I shouldn't be there and I was desperately trying for my entire high school years to have no one realize that you know that I didn't belong there didn't live in the right kind of house didn't live in the right suburb didn't have the right clothes um you know, and that's just, that's kind of socioeconomically, but also culturally, you know, Chloe's got a very similar background to myself. So culturally, I did not fit in being neither all white or all Asian. So yeah, I I think I, a lot of that stuff just came up and I just ran with it because I think that for a long time, I have been trying to tell the kind of stories that are meaningful to me and having the barrier of not thinking I'm allowed to tell those kind of stories and not seeing many examples around me of those stories, which is why it really pleases me to hear you say that you feel like there are a lot of things that are uni- universal in the book because yeah, when, yeah, when you feel like your your stories have not been centred at all, then you assume, you know, that no one's interested and that your story can't well, that speak other to a wide audience. relate. Yeah, or that, which is absolutely false. Um, 
it's a really self-limiting belief it's but it's a very natural belief to have I think you know especially as a writer in Australia you know it's it's a very natural belief for somebody who feels marginalized to you know struggle so I just let all that stuff pour out of me it was very cathartic it sounds like writing the gaps probably was quite a, a bit of a tough but really good experience yeah, yeah it was it was it was very <laughs> therapeutic it was also good I mean I'm, I'm I'm talking about it as if everything's like really autobiographical and it's really like not actually in a strange way like the therapy in it came from like assigning these feelings to other people and making up these characters that had one or two things in common with me, but also were completely different from me. And that in itself, like giving the story and giving the feelings to made up people and made up situations actually allowed me to get rid of a lot of stuff. So in a weird way, it was the fictionalizing part of it that actually was therapeutic. That's so interesting. It's so That's interesting. Amazing. And, I'm, yeah. and you phrased it so well. There's a PhD in there for somebody. Please go and study that. I'm sure there is because most, you know, I guess so many people do say that this book is like partially autobiographical or it's inspired by this and or the main character is so much like me. And I feel like it's it's either that or nothing and it's just completely made up and I it's based on nothing and no one so that sort of in between I think is actually really interesting mm, it's, it's a strange yeah. alchemy I mean you're always I'm, I'm just taking little bits of everyone I've ever met you know personality and jamming yeah. them together and trying to you know obviously characters have to be very coherent and make logical rational sense but you know you really do steal from everywhere to make something that seems hopefully you know authentic and realistic well you definitely you definitely achieved that um I also um I read that you were writing the gaps at the same time as your previous middle grade novel which you mentioned Iris and the Tiger two very very different novels there how did you go about writing them in tandem like that oh I I forget how it happened but I just (laughs) You know, I'm a really slow writer. Yeah, I'm a slow writer. It takes me years to write a book and you do get a point sometimes where you get stuck or bored or in the case of the gaps, I just felt worn out by the experience. You know, it's a really, obviously a really heavy book in many ways um, and a difficult, difficult subject matter and could take a toll on me mentally to be writing that. So I would, flipping back between the gaps and Iris and the Tiger, which is for a much younger audience has a lot of magic and whimsy in it and takes place, you know, a completely different country in a magical environment. That really balanced well against writing kind of a heavier book for an older audience. So it, each of them like allowed me to keep the interest in the other book. So I would, you know, focus for six months on one and then six months on the other. And, you know, sometimes you just have to let your writing lie anyway. You just have to put it aside and let it lay fallow for a little while and come back to it with, with fresh eyes. Well, that way I would let one one project kind of lie fallow and then I could get on with another one and feel productive and then I would go back. So I, I don't know whether it stretched out the timeline for both of them, probably. I suspect it would have been faster if I'd just written one than the other, but I have realised that I make no sense as a writer. My process is all over the place. It's not, like, efficient in any way and as a writer in terms of genre or type of book or story I want to tell, I'm a mess. I'm all over the place. I either don't fit into a category or I jump between categories. Like 
I wish I could be a nice, tidy, marketable person who writes stories <laughs> very fast, but uh, alas, that's not, not how I work at all. Yeah, well, I think that is... I mean, I work in publishing, so I definitely know there are authors where it comes around every, you know, September, yeah. for example, we've got another one and the cover will look almost exactly like last year's book. And I and mean, there's, there's nothing wrong with that as we've interviewed some amazing authors oh, on this podcast who have really like wants to do that. It's amazing. I am anyone who can write a book in like in a year and the next while editing the last one and then like thinking about the next one it's just like a book a year is insane I don't know how people do that although Leanne I do I do think there would be a lot of a lot of um Aussie YA readers who would love it if you could bring out a book a year. Oh, <laughs> I, I honestly do not- wish you know of course I do look at those authors that can bring out a book and you, it's very hard not to compare yourself I honestly wish that I could but yeah but everyone's different yeah I think it's really good to acknowledge that there are so many differences as writers as well because it just like you said it becomes another point of comparison and let's be honest being in a creative profession anyway is an emotional minefield of doubting yourself every five minutes it's literally like a little roller coaster of like I'm amazing no I'm not like (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. It's crazy. So I think it's really good that, I mean, and this is why we like to talk about the writing process on the podcast, because then it just opens up and shows people that whatever way they are writing, if they are if they are, are writers and listening to this and thinking that one day, you know, they'd like to be published or they're already published, I just think it normalizes the differences yeah. then as well. Oh, yeah. absolutely. I mean, if you can, I've, tried to work pretty I've worked at trying to accept the type of writer that I am and you know I think a lot of writers by their very nature are very driven very motivated very perfectionist very hard on themselves extremely self-critical it kind of comes with the territory so I've really had to work hard at accepting myself and my process and also just trying to learn to be kinder to myself because as you said it is it is a real emotional roller coaster yeah, definitely. And that's a hundred percent like an ongoing learning process mm. for all of us. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And and you did say that you kind of jump around in genres and categories and even age groups, as we said. So we would just love to talk about that a bit more because you have written for like younger children, YA, across a couple of different genres now. Mm. And it kind of like that bending genres thing so how I don't even know what the question is we just want to talk about it (laughs) oh I unfortunately like I just I have always felt like a little bit of a weirdo and that just (laughs) manifests itself in my writing like I I wrote stories you know from prep and if you look at them they're they're bizarre like they're that mixture of reality and fantasy or reality you know the mundane and the magical like it's in my it's in my stories you know the little ones scribbled in pencil in exercise books and kind of naively illustrated that mixture is there from the start so it's just I've always told stories like that in actual fact with the gaps it felt weird because there is no magic in the gaps you know um it's starkly real and that was a real departure for me um, normally the magic and the fantasy and the oddness and the surrealism comes in quite naturally for me, but 
this time it was, wasn't appropriate for that to happen. I do think that that boundary between reality and fantasy is actually really false in many ways because I either like to write in first-person perspective or close third-person perspective. And, you know, those any narrator is kind of in fantasy land in, inside <laughs> their own head, even in a yeah. contemporary realist book. Yeah, I guess like, so. The perspective, yeah. if you're really close with the perspective, everyone's kind of insane, really, inside their heads. Yeah. Like, they're not in reality. Like, we're so coloured by our biases and our emotions and the way we see things and our moods, um, you know, and in the gaps, I would definitely say, you you know, Natalia, especially at the start, is experiencing some form of disassociation, um, you know, and that is an altered state of being in the world you know, so I, I think that boundary between something that's real and something that isn't, I think is is kind of a false one anyway. In terms of like age groups, I just think I've always been one of those writers who writes because they're a reader, you know, books have been my, you know, first love um, from the time I was very young and I enjoy reading books for all age groups. Um, so I just think it's really natural that I would write, say, a middle grade book and a YA book because I just really love reading across those categories. I love reading junior fiction, but I've tried to write junior fiction and I can't. It's so hard. I think junior fiction or picture books are so difficult to write. So even though I love reading them, those are two age groups I think I would struggle to write for. It's You have to be so succinct, you know. I agree. I think that too. I think picture book is a classic one where – People who maybe aren't as into like the book world, even if they are reading, would think it's so easy. What is it? Like a hundred words? But to actually have a story <laughs> across that that sense and is, you know, a good story. So difficult. It's it's like poetry, you know. It's like such yeah. a distilled like distilled essence of like character and world and story in a picture book. Yeah. Yeah, and to make like that it's age appropriate, that it conveys the appropriate themes for, you know, whatever the story is. And yeah, it's it's definitely an art form all of itself that yeah, gotta be very, very good to Maybe that. when I'm an octogenarian um, I'll I'll reach the level of craft where I can write a <laughs> Um, so let's just go back to your debut novel for a bit. Um, I mentioned before we started recording that it was one of the first Australian YA books that I really remember reading right back when I started blogging in university. So it's it was called This Is Shyness, if if people aren't familiar with it. Um, it was I feel like it was massively loved by the bloggers that I was following and there was just this... Um, like reverence around it and like, you know, no pressure. Um, <laughs> but it also won the text prize, which we have, we've had other winners of the text prize on. Um, and we always say it's such a prestigious prize and it's something that I look to. Um, and I sort of, I really trust that text prize. Yeah, we still say that, don't we? We can't wait until yeah. the text prize is released. We love oh, the text it's, prize. Because <laughs> it's just like it's next level amazing YA that it's the sort of thing that I say, you know, if people doubt the power of YA, I would point them to that list of books and say, like, read any one of them and, you know, you'll, you'll see that it's not just, you know, Twilight or whatever you think that, <laughs> 
why it is, you know. Anyway, coming off the back of, of that and the success around this is shyness and the acclaim for your writing, did you have any apprehension going into sitting down to write again and draft what I, I assume became Queen of the Night, but you may have had others in between that moved around and stuff. Oh, definitely. I mean, there was a, a wonderful freedom in writing This Is Shyness in that I didn't really feel bound by much. I, I didn't know how to write a book. I've never written one before <laughs> the end. So, I mean, I was really just flying by the seat of my pants and didn't really know what I was doing. And so actually that was kind of freeing. No one expected anything of me. No one was watching me. No one was like asking for it. In actual fact, I found that quite relaxing. But writing Queen of the Night was like the opposite experience from that. I had written This Is Shyness as a standalone and I didn't think that it had a sequel or was, you know, part of a series or anything like that. But early readers kind of assumed that there was a sequel or that it was part of a series and that the story did continue. And my editor raised it with me pretty early on and I was like, well... I haven't set it up in any way. It's not like I pla- you know, planted any seeds for there to be a sequel. that Or a cliffhanger or something. No, yeah. there's no grand map or plan here. So I had to think about whether I could do it. And of course I wanted to do it and I came up with an idea straight away. And I was asked to write a draft pretty quickly. But I think it's fair to say that that draft was a real disaster. I, I finished it quickly, you know, in a matter of like three or four months, I think it was, and handed it in and it was a, it was a hot mess. And uh, I was told it was a hot mess. I knew it was a hot mess. And then, then I was cut some slack, you know, I was told to just go off and take my time. And so that, that way I learned I'm not the type of writer that responds well to pressure and deadlines. Some people love pressure and deadlines. I actually need for things to be pretty relaxed and chill and easy um, for the writing kind of juices to flow. So it definitely taught me that. Um, And it was a thoroughly different experience writing when you felt like people were watching, when you felt like you had an audience, the kind of fear and anxiety that comes with that and the kind of trying to like, you know, divine, like what people are expecting of you, delivering (laughs) that instead of actually just writing what you want to write. Um, was difficult but I mean I think the second book is interesting because I think that you know technically speaking just looking at sales my second book was not very successful perhaps or you know wasn't as successful as the first book depends on what what measure you want to put for success but in actual fact I love Queen of the Night I'm really proud of it I think it's actually a much better book than This Is Shyness and uh, I was really proud of what I did with that and and I in my mind it's a, a success because I really felt like I grew a lot as a writer through that experience of writing the second book so I've got a real sounds like a success it. to me yeah yeah I, that that sounds successful yeah, I, I do think of it for myself as a, you know given my by my own standards I think of it as a success absolutely and it's funny isn't it because like you know Caitlin and I have both I I don't really do book reviews anymore but we've both you know had a book blog and we obviously come on this podcast and talk about books we love and and we think that we are being so you know oh, not that we sit here and think wow we're being wonderful but like we're just really excited and praise the authors that we love and we say this is amazing but we never think that actually that could be contributing to you having like a mini mental <laughs> breakdown when you try <laughs> when you try to write the next book we're just like this is the most incredible book I've ever read and then you see that and you're like oh my god like great what am I supposed to do now 
<laughs> I think on the yeah, balance, so. the writers will still want the praise, though. You know, I feel like yeah, it's, yeah. I think if you gave yeah. it to she'd be like, "They please say nice things about me." But yeah, I know. Like, it must have been so tough to come back from just in terms of like everyone just praising the the technical side of things as well. Like, when you sit down to write something, it's it's sort of very different when you know that you have to try and write in a really good way as opposed to just writing how you normally would as well. Like if you think too much about what people are going to say at the other end, you sort of get too caught up in that and sort of stop yourself writing when really that polishing can come in the editing stage. Oh, I mean, the first draft I think is tough for a lot of writers because you do have to accept that it is in no way going to resemble anything that you would ever want to put your name to. Like it's kind of heartbreaking, the first draft. It's it's so bad. It's always bad. <laughs> It's that awful thing of seeing the gap of of where it is and where you want it to be and knowing how much work it's going to take to get there, you know. But, I, I mean, often when I'm, like, mentoring, you know, writers or, or teaching students, I'm, I'm, I always try to explain to them that the first draft is is terrible for everyone, even, you know, best-selling or critically acclaimed authors. It's terrible for everyone. We should just say as well that your dog has fallen asleep in the background if people can hear. Oh, you can hear little tiny Yeah. <laughs> no, that's all right. Uh, I'm, yeah, that's so fine. But um, from this, like, writing perspective, did writing your second two books compared to your second, I should say, compared to your second the third and fourth book did that feel different when you were writing I, I feel like they all feel different you know like I, it doesn't get any easier I still don't actually don't know how to write a book like you know I've written four now I love when authors say that it's I like love you've written that. four so I would think that you do no idea I'm being I'm being a little bit silly like you you know some stuff but you don't know everything and each book is so different from the last unless maybe you're writing in a series where you really you know have the same world the same characters that you I would generally say that every book that I write I have to adopt a new writing process it's not like I find you know I think you know when um, I guess you are starting from scratch every time yeah I'm starting from scratch every time and and different books call for different types of process so, um, for example, Iris and the Tiger, I was struggling with that. And I think um, one of my members of my writing group said, well, listen, like the world that you've created at this, you know, country estate in Spain where surreal things are actually real and, and magical things happen is so so crazy that your plot could actually be quite simple and straightforward because the world itself is pretty bonkers. You don't then have a really, really complicated layered plot. So that required a different type of process from me. So, you know, I'm going to write, I'm going to attempt a historical YA next. Um, and I've never done, I've never written historical fiction before. I've got no idea what I'm doing. So I have to invent a new process for that because the process that I use for the gaps is not going to work for a historical fiction. So I do, I do feel like I have to 
you know, reinvent stuff every single time. That's fascinating. Again, why we love talking to every writer about their process because it's all, all so different. different. And there's no, there's no one size fits all no. approach to writing no. at all. Yeah. That's the thing I think, no. you know, that emerging writers or beginner writers are always searching for. And, and I'm the same. I mean, you know, obsessively researching other writers' processes as if you can just uncover the one thing that will magically unlock your writing potential and make the thing easy and work and it's kind of yeah. like that's actually it's not real like yeah you know it's just that yeah. idea is it not doesn't real. exist no <laughs> one's going to tell you the secret I'm so sorry. it doesn't exist <laughs> oh yeah um you mentioned before we started talking um before we started the recording sorry when we were talking about this is shyness that you felt like that was a bit of a golden year to be to be releasing your debut Aussie YA novel. Um, and obviously a lot's happened since then in the industry. Um, and well, that's just before we even think about what happened in 2020. <laughs> um, and obviously um, we mentioned too that, you know, kids and YA books are your speciality in in your role as a bookseller as well. So um, can you kind of give us a bit of your take on, where Love Oz YA is at at the moment and anything you think is sort of missing or where we need to sort of be headed? I feel like we're heading into another boom, to be honest. Like I feel like 2020 was a great year for Australian so. YA and looking ahead yeah. to 2021, I'm I'm really excited to be published this year because I feel like there's a lot of exciting Australian YA coming out this year and I'm so thrilled to kind of feel part of a cohort again of, of really, you know, a really great set of books. Um I do think, you know, people always, I think there's a lot of industry talk about the decline of YA and a lot of alarming statistics. Um, I do think that YA goes through boom and bust periods. Um, and I think there was, I do think there was a genuine kind of downturn um, in sales for a little while there. But I feel I feel like things are heading in the more. past few years. I no. think it's been up again. Yeah, I'm feeling a lot more. Yeah, I feel a lot more optimistic about it. And and the fact is, is like even if you're gonna like, you know, give into alarmist statistics about about YA, the fact is, is like the people that do read it are like more passionate than ever about it. Like the passion never wanes. There will always be extremely, extremely dedicated readers of YA and Australian YA. So, but I, I do feel like it's it's very healthy at the moment. I do also think like it's in no way like where it should be, but I do think that there has been increased representation in Australian YA in recent years. And I think that that there have been some new writers come along um, that have very exciting and unique stories to tell. I feel like things are slowly improving that in that area. But, you know, we've obviously been talking about diversity and representation for a really long time now and it feels like the wheels move way too slow on it. But I do feel like I, I feel like there are a lot of exciting new voices coming out in the last couple of years. And so one measure of success I think is is like cultural dialogue and actual real demonstration that people are gaining access to the industry and being able to tell great stories that we haven't perhaps seen enough of those types of stories before. So I think that is another 
healthy sign. And I obviously would like to see that go much further in that direction. But I do think that the cultural contribution of Australia YA has been very strong in the last couple of years. Absolutely. Yeah. There's been some amazing books out and hopefully many more to come as well. Yes. Many, many more. (laughs) Yes. Because we will always be those like fierce Aussie YA fans will always be there to read whatever there is. It's so nice that there's such a supportive community, I think, in Australia for, for YA. I mean, it's really nice to be part of that community. It, it feels nice and it doesn't doesn't happen in every art form <laughs> that no. people are that supportive. Thank you so much for giving us your time tonight, oh, Leanne. No, thank you so much for giving your so time. So nice to talk to you. Yeah, it's been lovely to chat. Thank you for reading my book and asking so many thoughtful questions. Well, thank you for answering them. <laughs> yeah, the book is incredible. And actually, I think if there are any people who don't usually read YA, this is definitely one that you need to start with. And I think it's perfect if you enjoyed something like Boy Swallows Universe, maybe even After the Silence by Louise O'Neill, who we yeah. we featured last um, last season. And that was, it was similar in that it was about a crime, but it wasn't necessarily like a traditional crime novel. Definitely, if you're thinking that YA is maybe not not your thing, then you need to check out this book. Um, where can people find you online, Leanne? Um, I'm probably most active on Twitter, where I'm at Lily Mandarin. No resemblance to my actual real name. Um, <laughs> Lily Mandarin is actually like an alter ego of mine I've had since I was a teenager. Um, like I love a, it. Yeah, kind of like a, a cooler a cooler girl who can tap dance and run away to the circus, like was always like my little alter ego, like embodied everything that I wasn't at 19. Um, so, yeah, and I am on that handle at Instagram as as well. That's so cool. I have actually always wondered about that because you're probably one of the one of the first writers from Aussie, you know, YA world that I followed on Twitter. And now that you say, I'm like, yeah, I have actually wondered why it's that. But I know it's extremely inconvenient so cool. and confusing, and probably not like the right marketing or branding thing to do for myself. But um, there you go. I no, I like yeah. it. I think everyone everyone used to have like funny Instagram yeah. handles or Twitter handles and everything. Yeah. And then we all got so serious and now it's yeah. just everyone's names. So it's, I like yeah, it whenever it's... people have a bit of a funny one. Oh, well, I'm still holding <laughs> yeah. on to that. I've still got my Hotmail email address. It's a relic that I yeah. <laughs> hold on to my strange Twitter handle. Yes. <laughs> I love that. Thank you so much for oh, joining us. You. And congratulations again on the release of the book. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Better Words. You can chat to us on Instagram at Better Words Pod. And follow me, Michelle, at Unfinished Bookshelf. And me, Caitlin, at Just a Bookish Babe. If you liked this episode, please share it with a book loving friend and leave a rating or review.